Hey, let me welcome you to CMU, and thanks for encouraging me as you sing. I was at a workshop this last week and had a great time, but I would love to have been able to experience worship like we get to here tonight and like we get to on Sunday mornings. Uh, it really is just a small world. I was in uh, Florida speaking on their Equip conference, and it was strange because everywhere I, I met, went, I met somebody that, that knew somebody that was going to be at CMU this week. Got to uh, be with David Young a little bit for you... Uh, Tennessee people there, so we got to talk, and I think I got him straightened out, so you guys, uh, hopefully that'll be helpful, and then met some people that knew Mackie, and uh, they talked to me even though that was true, and so it was great seeing them. It was weird, though. I started talking about St. Louis, and if you're not from St. Louis, you may not get this, okay, but there was a St. Louis connection. I met a brother down there, an African-American brother that he... He doesn't know that he has a twin here at, at the crossings, but I, I, this guy looks so much like this brother here that I said, hey, can I take a picture of you? Because obviously you are a brother from a different mother. So I got Chris Mullins in Florida here, okay? <laughs> Stand up, Chris, okay? <laughs> so that was kind of a cool St. Louis connection there, you know what I'm saying there? I, you, I don't know how you can miss that resemblance. I, you need to go talk to your dad or your mom or somebody. I don't know what's going on there, obviously. And then the guy that was preaching, uh, dude, I, I looked up and, and, you know, Cedric the Entertainer is from St. Louis and he was preaching on Thursday night. Can you see him up there on the big screen? And so it was really cool being, in, really, it wasn't Cedric the Entertainer, but it looked a lot like him. I couldn't get that out of my head. And so afterwards on Saturday, I walked up to him. I said, hey, I'm from St. Louis. And he began to smile, which that's what Cedric would do. And I said, I'm from St. Louis. Does anybody ever tell you you look like? And he said, Cedric the Entertainer. I said, yeah. He goes, all the time. He goes, you want to know a story? Two years ago, his mom is a member of the Church of Christ in St. Louis. Is there every time the doors are open. And I've got to know over the years. But the first time I ever preached her, I was walking down from the pulpit. I said, back of the door, she's ex. And she goes, you know, you look just like my son. And so I said, well, well, you do, so it's just not me. So it was kind of cool, the St. Louis connection. So anyway, that's, that was my weekend, but I was really looking forward to being with you all this weekend because I believe that within this room, there is the potential to see God do things that is as big as the potential of the seminar that I was speaking on. And while we may only have three, maybe two or 300, 400 here this weekend that signs up and they had nearly 3,000, they don't know that sometimes dynamite comes in small packages and so do the plans and the blessing of God. And so as we talk about living in Babylon or thriving, not just living, not just surviving, but thriving in Babylon, I was really uh, blessed and pleased to be able to have the opening lesson to talk about some things that the Bible says about what we need to do as we look back on the Babylonian culture and really all of the Old Testament to where the people of Israel were constantly living in a culture that was opposed to what they wanted and what God wanted. And the truth is that it doesn't matter when you live, it doesn't matter how long you live, you'll never live in a culture that supports the things that God wants. That doesn't happen until we're in heaven. So we gotta figure it out. And in the, in, in the Bible, as it points back and it looks at the Old Testament, it's a very objective book. And it does two things. It gives us both warnings about how we can live and the consequences of, that, of living like that and it gives us a message of hope that tells us all that could be. Now, I really like emphasizing the hope, but to be fair, we have to look at both of them tonight. On the screen, you got a passage of scripture out of Romans 15, four, where the Bible says this, as Paul speaks, he says, for everything that was written in the past was written to teach us. You see, all those stories that are written in the past, 
you don't have, they don't write them, you know, like Abraham, that story of him being like an old man, 90 years old, and his wife laughing at him because whenever God says you're gonna have a baby, you know, that's not something that he even probably once wrote down because, you know, that he's, got some, he's got some problems that really that he's pre, the pre-Viagra age, you know, age and, and so he doesn't have, have any ability anymore, he thinks, to have kids. When his wife looks at him, she laughs. The Bible describes him as as good as dead, which is not at all how you want your wife to describe you and your exploits, you know? So Abraham doesn't want any of that stuff wrote down. Abraham knew all that stuff, okay? Jonah didn't need to be reminded that he was in the belly of the whale. You know, that's not something you forget. Oh yeah, I forgot about being swallowed by that big fish one time. That doesn't, you don't forget that. All of those stories that you hear and all those great things that you read about, the Bible says none of it was recorded for them. But instead it says it was recorded for you and I. And not only does it say it was everything that was written in the past was to teach us, it, it says it was written for us to teach us so that through the endurance taught in scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. So he says, here's one thing, when you read the stories of the Old Testament, and we're gonna be spending a lot of time talking about Daniel and the events around Daniel and how our culture is a lot like Daniel now. When you read all of that, it is written to teach you, to encourage you so that you can have a confident expectation of things that are good that can happen if you choose to be like Daniel. In Romans 15, four in the easy to read version says it like this, everything that was written in the past was written to teach us. Those things were written down so that we could have hope. That hope comes from the patient encouragement that the scriptures give us. You see, as you look at these stories, all of the great stories of the Old Testament feature an underdog that whenever is faithful to God always comes out on top. And he goes, man, you need to remember that because you may not think you've got great potential. You may think that you'll never amount to anything. You may think that the obstacles are so huge in your culture and your time that you can't accomplish anything. I wrote all this stuff down so you'd know differently. But it wasn't just designed to encourage us. Because you see, sometimes I think we sing and we talk about encouraging things and we do it while we ignore the churches burning down. And so the, all of the Old Testament isn't just about encouragement and hope, but it's about warnings about hopelessness if we don't respond to God the way that he wants us to. In 1 Corinthians 10, 11, Paul says, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings, not warnings for them, they're dead, okay? Too late, sorry, you know, Moses, can't help you out, right? You're dead. They're written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. He says, all of this stuff has been leading up to you guys, and I wanted to make sure that as these ages culminate and they come to an end, that they come to a crescendo, not just a quiet death. In 1 Corinthians 10, 11, the message paraphrase is great in launching us into this reality of how we have to look at both the, the good news but also the warning. He says these are all warning markers and it's in 1 Corinthians 10, he's talking about all of the characters of the Old Testament and the struggles specifically that they had in inheriting the things that God had promised. All these are warning markers, danger in our history books written down so that it, we don't repeat their mistakes. Our positions in the story are parallel. They're at the beginning and we're at the end and we're just as capable as messing it up as they were. 
So here's the, here's the good news is there's great hope. Here's the not so good news. You can mess it up just like they did because rarely did it end well for many of those Old Testament characters and their churches that they were a part of back then. So we're gonna look at two passages of scripture primarily. In one, we're gonna look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and we're gonna look at the warnings that are there that he says, hey, listen. And then we're gonna look a little bit more at the hope that he gives. But the question really that we've got to look at is that there's a warning, and here is the warning that Paul gives to the Corinthian church as he speaks to a group of people that he's trying to encourage to avoid the same mistakes as their ancestors, their spiritual ancestors. And here's the warning that he gives to them. Don't be ignorant thinking that adherence to rituals is a substitute for authentic faith. Don't think that just doing a few right things is a substitute for having the right kind of faith. Now that warning is something that you and I really need to listen to because he said, ultimately, this is what I'm trying to teach you guys because if you think that somehow going through a few rituals substitutes for a faithful relationship to God, you need to be warned, not encouraged. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse one, Paul says this, I don't want you to be ignorant. That's what he starts with. I don't want you to be ignorant of the fact. Here are just the facts. It's not a negative perspective. It's not a positive perspective. It's a genuine perspective. It's a factual perspective. I don't want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink for they, and, uh, for they drank from the spiritual, spiritual rock that accompanied them and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered throughout the wilderness. Now remember, he's talking to a group of people that he is going to reference baptism, their baptism in more than one place in the book. He's also going to correct them about how they are taking the Lord's Supper, partaking of the bread and the fruit of the vine. But as he speaks to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he goes, listen, here's a danger that you guys have. You think because you were baptized and because you take the Lord's Supper, you're in the assembly every week, that somehow that that means that great things are naturally going to happen. But I wanna warn you that that's exactly what these people in the Old Testament thought. They thought as long as we're baptized and as long as we're taking, and it even says of this bread and this drink, which is from Christ, that we're okay. And he says, nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. And rather than it being a force in the promised land, they found their bodies scattered throughout the wilderness. You see, I think all of us wanna be a force that when we get to the promised land, that not only are we there, but we've had an impact on others. That's one of the things that I love about Campus Ministry United. It's one of the things that I love about the Crossing Church is getting to know people that I've never known and to long to be with them in eternity and to know that I'm not the only one that's longing, you're longing too and so you're reaching out, but you need to understand that just because you've been baptized and you go to church consistently and take of the Lord's Supper on a regular basis, it doesn't ensure that you're gonna populate heaven. It may mean that you just simply populate the wilderness with the corpse of people who watched you and became like you. 
And they were more involved in a ritualistic relationship with God than a living, breathing, faith-filled relationship with God. In Hebrews chapter three, the Hebrew writer, as he describes everything that's going on with this, with this, this group of people, he, he boils it down and says, you know, I know what their problem, I know why they couldn't enter the rest, they couldn't enter the promised land. And in Hebrews chapter three, verse 19, the Bible says, those people did not enter the place of rest because they did not have faith. Now again, as you look at that, you're going, hold it. They're walking through the wilderness. They're following Moses. They've been baptized in the sea. They've partaken of the rock, the water. They've ate the manna, which is Jesus. And they call on Jehovah, but yet they don't have faith. What's that about? And it points to this reality that you can be a person of faith who neither finds God nor leads others to God. In the book of James, Jesus' brother says, listen, don't, don't be deceived. The devils believe there's one God. They're not even pluralistic. They're, they believe in one God and they tremble, but yet he points to the fact that their faith doesn't save them or anybody else. And so as we look through these people, there's a faith problem that they have. And one of the things that the Bible teaches is if you have a faith problem, you have an accomplishment problem. If you have a faith problem, you have a victory problem. If you have a faith problem, you have a success problem. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 4, the Bible says, every child of God has the power to overcome the world. Now, that's awesome. Everybody that's here, as we talk about living in this culture, John is writing at a time that the culture was very similar to ours, We'll be referencing Babylon, which is very similar to ours. And John writes confidently, unafraid of the culture. And that's one of the things I hope that you guys will be, will be fearless because John says, listen, every believer, every child of God has the power to win against the world. But then he says this, it's our faith that has won the victory. So who wins against the world? Only those who believe that Jesus is the son of God. And when he says only those who believe, John is going to let them know that it's not just a faith that claims to believe, but it's a faith that leads to following the one they believe in. It's the same kind of faith that James is going to be dealing with, that John is, and he lets us know that, listen, I don't care who you are if you're a child of God. I don't care about your self-esteem. You may have poor self-esteem. Your problem, if you're not accomplishing things for God, isn't a self-esteem problem, it's a faith problem. I grew up with horrible self-esteem. From as long as I can remember, from as young as I was, I felt very strongly that there was something wrong with me, something that was flawed, something that was twisted, something that made me different than the other kids. And I never told anybody about the feelings or understood what prompted those feelings to come into my life. But I always felt dumb and unattractive and warped somehow. I had a self-image problem, but the cure to make me, making me victorious is not bolstering my self-image, it's believing that Jesus can do what he says he can do. Because you can try to pump yourself up all you want to. You can do, my mom used to tell the story of the little train that could. Anybody ever have that story? Or is it was just warped kids that they told it to? See, my mom knew too. This kid's a mess. I need to talk to him. It was about this little train that just came up on it. It was pulling a load and it came up to a mountain and through positive attitude, it said, I think I can. And I can remember my mother reading it in the cadence of a train engine of a locomotive. I think I can, I think I can. And she told the story that because she, the, the train thought it could, it could. The only problem with me is that I couldn't. 
Talking myself into the things that I needed to do and be were impossibilities. And I want you to know, maybe you're here and that's you too. And if not, you've got an equally daunting problem with your pride. So either one, we got problems unless we come to this understanding that faith is the thing that gives us a victory. And the great warnings in scripture about the nation of Israel, ultimately it boils down to a faith issue. Now in 1 Corinthians 10, he's gonna give them five examples of how this faith, this lack of faith manifests itself. You see, I think you gotta go, how can I know if I'm heeding this faith warning? If faith is the problem and if faith is the victory, if I'm warned about my faith, how do I know if I'm paying attention to it or am I ignorant? Because if you're not informed, you may think that you have the answers right, but if you're ignorant, you don't know that you've got them wrong until someone shows you. Well, when Paul speaks to the Corinthian church, he begins in, first, in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, and he says to them, test yourselves to make sure that you're solid in the faith. Now that's plural, test yourselves to make sure you're solid in the faith. That's what we're gonna do for a moment tonight, but it has to be about testing yourself, singular. Because you see, I would much rather take this test for my wife, okay? That would be much more enjoyable for me, okay? It's like, oh, this is easy, I'm good at this one. You have to test yourself, and here's why. Warnings that don't apply to you, you rarely listen to. I, was, I saw a sign the other day, and it was like a warning sign. I don't know if it said warning, but it was like the colors, you know, the warning signs, and it said, rapid weight loss can be hazardous to your health. And I thought, that's never anything I wanna worry about. That doesn't apply to me, okay? I never have to worry about that. And there's some things that you may look at and go, man, what's that got to, unless you personalized the test, you'll never be able to know and fully grasp the warning. So he says, test yourselves to make sure you're solid in the faith. Don't drift along taking everything for granted. Give yourselves regular checkups. You need firsthand evidence, not mere hearsay, that Jesus Christ is in you. Test it out, and if you fail it, do something about it. Now let me give you five questions that we can talk, that you can answer, that can give you the answer to, should I be concerned about the kind of faith I have? Am I going to have a faith that's victorious? And these are, these are questions that Paul was concerned was, that was affecting the Corinthian church and they affected the church in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, as they were trying to accomplish what God wanted them to accomplish. Question number one, do I crave pre pleasing God or pleasing self? It's a faith test. It's who you trust and who do you really believe is going to be able to give you the greatest life and the most fulfilling eternity? In 1 Corinthians 10, 6, he says, these things happen as warning to us so that we would not crave evil things as they did. You see, all of us have a system of, of, of desires. All of us want something. And it's really weird because quite frankly, the last two weeks have been a blur for me. And so I knew what I was going to talk about tonight, but I didn't sit down and formulate how this was gonna come out till this morning and, and spent uh, two or three or four hours this morning talking about this and praying about this, but it's weird that I woke up at about 5.30 this morning and I was praying going, God, you know, the thing that I want more than anything else, if I could just have one thing is that you would make me desire pleasing you more important than anything else. If you just give me one thing, just let me be somebody that you can look at and say, well done, I just wanna please you. 
Now that sounds really noble, okay? But if it were a regular occurrence, I wouldn't tell you about it, okay? And in practice, the struggle is much deeper. But as Paul looks at these people in the Old Testament, he says, man, they had a problem and they craved their selfish desires more than they craved being a person who pleased God. And because of that, the great things that God had planned for them were never accomplished. They got what they wanted, but they didn't get what God wanted. And what they wanted proved to be vastly inferior to what God wanted. So answer question one, do I crave pleasing God or pleasing self? Question number two, have I allowed anything to become more important to me than pleasing God? Do I have an idol? Is that a job? Is that a girlfriend? Is that a boyfriend? Is that a place that I'd like, that I'm comfortable living? Is it a place, is it my education? Is there anything that has become more important to me than pleasing God? In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse seven, he says, not only should you not crave evil things as they did or worship idols as some of them did. And the scripture says the people celebrated with feasting and drinking and they indulged in pagan revelry, which involved idol worship. They were all revved up about, about partying, but they weren't nearly as excited about exalting God. And when we talk about worshiping, they're worshiping idols and worshiping God. Understand worship, what we did tonight is, is one act of worship as we sing. And quite frankly, it is the cheapest of acts of worship. You've heard people say words are, are cheap. They really are. You see, somebody can come in and you can fake worship. You can just like music and not even believe in Jesus and sing songs and lift your hands. Now, I don't want to discourage that because I believe what we did tonight rocked, but you need to ask, am I having that approach to worshiping Jesus when I'm in the world or are there things that I invest more energy and effort in? And understand, I don't know what that is for you and you need to be introspective to identify that. For some of you, it may be the party stage to where, and really the partying for you is not so much about the drink, but it's about the popularity to where you want to fit in, you want to be accepted, you don't want to be viewed. And that comes probably from the same struggles with esteem that, you, that I had. For some of you, it may be that you have a problem with wanting to be noticed and you're not going to party, but you're going to preach. And the platform, you were never very good at partying anyway. You know, you were the geek at the party that everybody wondered, why is he here? But all of a sudden you found a place where geeks, and now the, the, the recognition that you get as someone who is leading in your ministry is not an act of worship, but it's an act of idolatry. And you gotta look in the mirror and say, is there something that's become more important to me? Because whatever is most important to you you will focus on. Whatever you focus on, you'll fall in love with, and whatever you fall in love with will control your life. That's what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount when he said the eye is the lamp of the body. He's saying whatever you focus on, that's what's gonna determine what you treasure. Whatever you love and treasure, that's going to be whatever you spend your time in, and it controls you, and whatever controls you becomes your master. So we have to make sure that our faith is authentic, that we are really saying this is about pleasing Jesus. And that's a struggle for me sometimes because I can be so consumed with pleasing me. Question number three, do I take God's call to sexual purity seriously? 
Over and over again, it shows up throughout all the pages of the Old Testament. And as soon as you get to Corinth and even before, it shows up in the New Testament. I'm just betting it showed up at your church too. Maybe even showed up in your campus ministry. Maybe even showed up in your bed. He says, listen, you've got to deal with adultery and we must not engage in sexual immorality as some of them did, causing 23,000 of them to die in one day. That's a warning. Now, I don't think that God is going to kill any of you for your immorality. Probably not. Never saw it happen, okay? But I have saw God kill your sexual immorality, kill your ministry. The guilt, the shame, the hypocrisy. You feel bad and people look at you and see the hypocrisy, the duplicity. And they want something that's life-changing, that's not simply image-altering. How you doing with that purity, that whole view, honestly, towards the sin that you're involved in? Question number four. Do I support and follow the spiritual leaders that God has placed in my life? Not just do I follow them, but I to support them. He says, nor should we put Christ to the test as some of them did and died from snake bites. Now, if you want to know what that's all about, go back and research in the Old Testament. But basically, they've got a leader that God has blessed them with, and all they can do is criticize and complain and not ever be able to support them rather than being someone who at least is riding on the wagon. They've all decided they're going to be the people who direct the wagon and put on the brakes. They've done nothing significant for God in their lives, but they are very good at dictating, determining that the person that God has placed in their life is not doing anything good for them. It is both a selfishness and a purpose problem. How are you doing at that? And then question number five in 1 Corinthians 10 is do I tend to have a negative complaining attitude? It moves on from the negativity towards the leadership to where it even goes greater to where he says, and don't grumble as some of them did, and they were destroyed by the angel of death. Here's one of the things I know in the Old Testament. There is never victory and grumbling that are in the same context, ever. And here's what I know about ministry. You never have grumbling ministries and victory in the same ministry. One will eliminate the other. So it's written down as a warning to you to say, listen, we've got to make sure that we're believing, that we're trusting in a way that's allowing God to change our lives. That's the warning. Now let's move on to the hope side. Because remember he said that all of this was designed to teach you through the encouragement of Scripture and through endurance, you would have hope. And hope in Scripture simply means a confident expectation. I want you to just dream. I tend to be someone who is a dreamer. I think the older I get, the more I realize that the dreams that I have, I may not get to live to see. And somehow that Satan uses that to maybe crush my dreaming. It was more natural for me when I was in my 30s, 20s, 30s, and 40s than it is now for me. But I believe that God wants us to dream. I, want, I think he wants us to imagine because the Bible says that now to him is able to do more than we ask or imagine. And it's with, based on the assumption that we're asking or imagining. That when the Bible talks about faith, it gives us an understanding of what faith is. It says that faith, anyone that comes to God must believe that God is. There's an intellectual side to faith that's essential. But anyone who comes to God, because it says without faith it's impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. It is essential that you and I know that the God that we believe in is involved and longs to reward those who seek him. 
And if we're not careful, we'll get into this sort of televangelist, Joel East Osteen, where God becomes a vending machine. But if we are really seeking God first, our dreams and what it means to be blessed goes beyond anything that's about us. And it becomes about him. The greatest satisfaction I get in life is not when I get some toy, but it's when I get to see somebody's life that's changed. When I get to, get to see God redeem someone who was broken and he puts them back together and they become representatives who put others together. And I get to watch the blessing that surrounds their life even when they're going through hardship. And in that hardship, they are loved and supported. And someday that will all be perfected if we don't give up because we've lost hope because our faith isn't solid. I want you to know that your campus ministry can be bigger and better and more significant and more life-changing for you, for the people in your group, for the people that are around. And it's not just about now, but there's an eternal movement in your ministry that God wants to explode into greatness. And that can be something that's not iffy, but it can be confident. And here's the message of hope as Paul writes to that Corinthian church and to you and I, and as the Hebrew writer speaks, and that hope is this, is that authentic, enduring faith still ensures victory. It's not talent. It's not ability. It's not proficiency. It's not skill. It's not somebody's superior intellect or their inferior intellect. It is Enduring faith that brings about victory in your life and in your ministry. In Hebrews chapter 11, the Hebrew writer says this, faith is the confidence that we hope, faith is the confidence that what we hope for will actually happen. It gives us assurance about the things that we can't see. What is it that because of your faith that you are hoping will happen in your ministry? You know, we have a vision here at the crossings. It's called, it was called our 2020 vision. It's going to be here before long. But we started it not long after we planted the church in 2004. And we started with 35 people, but with 35 people, we made the decision by the time 2020 came around, the, or the end of 2020, we were going to plant three churches that will be, would be churches that would mirror the purpose and intent that is in Scripture, that they see in Scripture, and they see hopefully in this church. So we started with 35 people and in 2014, we got to send out our first church. That's the Interbelt Church. You guys, stand up if you're here. I don't even know who all's here. If you're from the Interbelt Church of Campus Ministry, stand up, okay? See, for me, you guys are a dream come true. When I think about, man, what's my hope? What's the thing that I dream of that I think God can do? You represent that. Last year, we, and, and 2014, four years later, I guess it's not last year anymore, but uh, in, uh, that's unreal, in, in 2000, when, when, did we, when did we send out Collinsville? I'm getting all mixed up here. That didn't help me. Last year, okay. Last year, three years later, we sent out the Collinsville group. If you're here from Collinsville, stand up, okay? If you're the Collinsville ministry or campus ministry. Awesome, and here's the cool thing with this. When I look at these, I know some of you guys that went to the inner belt. And if you're thinking, oh, that's really cool. I wish I had their ability. No, you don't, okay? You really don't. 
Man, I wish I had it as together as these guys. No, you really don't want things together as they have it. What you want is faith. And if you have faith, then you can be confident that good things are going to happen and you have to hang on to that faith because it's an assurance that what you have confidence will happen really well. You see, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse two, the Bible says, God was pleased with the people who lived a long time ago because they had faith like this. And then he goes into the book of Hebrews, uh, into the hall of fame of the Old Testament. They were transformed by their faith in cultures that had nothing to do with them. And if you look at that story, we don't know a lot about Abel. Abel was murdered by his brother, but the Bible says that his righteous blood still has effect in speaking to us today. Noah's a drunk, but every time we have a baptism, we reference something that Noah was involved in, in the flood and the ark. Abraham and Sarah were too old, but yet Abraham is the father of the faith that you are a child of, and if you're a daughter, the Bible says if you're a believer in a woman, then you're a daughter of Sarah. Isaac was a dysfunctional parent and a daydreamer. Jacob was a liar. Joseph was abused. And yet at the crossings, we reference this abused boy all the time. We have a group of ministries that are called the Manasseh ministry. Under that umbrella, we have a group of people that, of men and women that help people recover from childhood sexual abuse. One in four girls, one in seven, a little less than that now, will experience it in their life. And we have a group of people here, men and women, who will reach out and let them know that you can overcome that if you'll trust God because God has helped me overcome that. We have a group that will deal with families that were dysfunctional. There may have been no outright sexual abuse, but it was massive dysfunction and their life has been a mess because where they grew up didn't point them where God wanted them to. And some people say, well, that's just blaming your past. And just the truth is, in the church where I grew up, if you raised good kids, it was a tribute to the parents, to, to you as a parent. The Bible says, train up a child in the way they go, and, he'll not, and when he's old, he'll not depart from it. It's time that we get honest that our parenting has something to do with a child's eternity. And if it's poor parenting, it has to do something with a horrible eternity. And so these people invest. We have a, a group of our, of divorce, uh, our divorce care. When people come in, they know that if they're divorced, they can come to a place. And not only can that not be ostracized, but they can be pulled in and put back together because they've hurt from that. We have a ministry called Comforting Rachel, and it's for ladies who chose abortion. And it's ladies who keep it secret. It's one of the most embarrassing ministries, the one that ladies are the most afraid to talk to because they've been told it wasn't anything but a piece of flesh. It doesn't matter, but they can't get that off their mind. On the birthday, even if it was 20 years ago, it did matter. Comforting Rachel is named after the lay of whenever Jesus was born. Remember that, 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 that Pharaoh, uh, Herod tried to kill all the babies and it says that Rachel's mourning for her children because they, all, they are no more. There's other menders un underneath that, that that deal with the hurts of people and they're called the Manasseh Ministries. And the reason we call them the Manasseh Ministries is because Joseph, after he had been abused and misused, became the most faithful servant of God that we have possibly throughout the Old Testament. And when he had a kid, he said, I'll name him Manasseh because he has helped me. God has helped me forget the suffering of my youth. He was in prison, he was falsely accused. And every week we get to see his name and his wisdom pass on impact to other people. You see, Moses was a stutterer. Gideon was the runt and the least respected of his clan, of his litter. 
Samson was a hormonally driven, less crazed, perpetual teenager who still made it to Hebrews 11 because his dying acts were acts of faith. Rahab was a prostitute. She's mentioned there. But she's one of two women that helped produce the Christ. Jeremiah was too young. David was a mess, an adulterer, not to mention a murderer. And yet, Jesus would be called the son of David. Elijah was depressed and suicidal. Hosea was rejected and dumped by his wife over and over again. Jonah ran from God and all of them, the Bible says, lived by faith in spite of their flaws. And what I want you to know is none of them. You see, honestly, Moses didn't know he was Moses. You know what I mean? He really didn't. If you would have walked up to Jonah and go, oh, I, you're Jonah, I know you and the big fish. He would have said, I, I don't know what you're talking about. They didn't know any of that until they knew the one who controlled all of that. What I'm telling you is there is nothing significant about any one of them in and of themselves in Hebrews chapter 11. And the hope of that is that they're just like you and I. And whether we have to be warned about the evil imitation of the Old Testament or encouraged to know that, listen, God has been doing the above and beyond in your ministry, but not just in your stinking ministry, but in your life. God has a plan that is bigger than you could ask or imagine. And remember again the words of 1 John that everyone who is a child of God has the power to win against the world. It's our faith that has won the victory. So who gains Who wins against the world? Only those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. So Paul would write to the Galatian church that's beat up and lost hope in a culture that was overwhelming and say, so let's not allow ourselves to get fatigued doing good. At the right time, we'll harvest a crop if we don't give up and quit. And the reason you don't give up and quit is because you trust the one who is working even when things are tough. You see, I can't wait for campus, our campuses to explode. I can't wait to see the next generation of leaders. I can't wait to begin to envision God raising up somebody here that would have the impact of Paul, that would have the impact of Moses, that would have the impact of Sarah, that would have the impact of Rahab, that would have the impact of David. And God says, they are just like you. And you can be just like them if you'll have faith. Man, there is incredible warning about how dead and gone your campus ministry can be. How dead and gone you can be. And there is incredible hope about how alive and amazing you can be. And your campus ministry can be. If you will trust the one if you will really believe and allow that faith to change your life. Let's bow and pray. Father, I wanna thank you for the opportunity tonight. Father, I look out at a group of men, a group of high school students and college students and adults, and Father, I really am so excited about the adults that are here. But Father, I, I look out at a group of people that quite frankly, on a talent level and on intellect level are so far ahead of who I am. And God, that can be humbling, but it doesn't bring about a lack of hope because, Father, whether they are great or we are great for you, it will not be because of anything 
other than our faith. It is the transformative power that nothing can resist, that nothing can hold back, that nothing can hold down. And Father, as we live in Babylon with this incredible weight of a world that doesn't seem to care about Christ or about us, Father, I pray that we will be people who look to you and trust you and live and teach and love the way that you call us to. Father, as the lion roars, Father, help us to understand that our faith is strong enough to let us know that as you shut the mouths of lions in Daniel's day, you can today. And the lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus our Savior, is on our side. Help us, Father, to believe. Help us to obey. Father, help us to imagine and help us to see dreams come true, Father, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.